here's the thing, we have not seen retaliation. We have seen our capacity grow. We have seen mm. um, investment stay and in some places grow because we've chosen to do the bold thing. Again, when you hit a point of tension on the other side, there's beauty. This is Michelle Shireen Miri, your host and fellow traveler on The Ethical Rainmaker, a podcast exploring the topics we don't often visit in nonprofits and philanthropy, including the places we can step into our power or step out of the way. And today, we're going to share a case study. In July 2020, a content hub centering the voices of people of color in the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors was launched at communitycentricfundraising.org. In the first two weeks, 10,000 people joined the mailing list. Within the first few months, over 16,000 people were visiting the hub monthly. In the first eight months, more than 6,000 people joined social media channels, and a Slack community of more than 2,300 people was created, with 76 city-based affiliated groups which were connecting with each other. Over 60 pieces of content featuring the voices, experiences, thoughts, and tactics of people of color in and around fundraising have been published with more coming out weekly, including this podcast. As the co-chair of this effort, communitycentricfundraising.org, I've had an incredible window into how organizations all over the world are taking action around this fundraising model. And today, we're going to start sharing case studies. Now, a few quick definitions before we get into our episode. Community-centric fundraising is a fundraising model that upholds 10 ever-evolving core principles that have been aggregated and developed from conversations with many fundraisers of color over the past few years. These principles demonstrate what it could look like to transform fundraising and philanthropy so that they're co-grounded in racial and economic justice. It's not a one-size-fits-all model. It doesn't fix the racist roots of nonprofits in philanthropy. But the principles are an attempt at bringing greater equity to this work. These principles cover complex and nuanced ideas, like treating donors as partners, but in that, being transparent and occasionally having difficult conversations that we often avoid, pushing back when donors do or say things that are detrimental to our work or our community. Principles that suggest prioritizing the entire community constellation rather than glorifying an individual organization might be the better road presenting our work holistically instead of the piecemeal way we often feel compelled to do, defining and centering our community's needs rather than centering donors' preferences and solutions to a community issue, bringing a political and economic analysis of our work and understanding the ways in which our capitalist and transactional ways are diminishing the humanity of our community. There are 10 principles, those were just a couple, and of course, you can learn more about community-centric work and its history at communitycentricfundraising.org and in earlier episodes of this podcast featuring some of the voices of our co-founders. And as always, in this episode, there'll be robust show notes. At Community-Centric Fundraising, we've heard that the movement has provided folks with the language and tools to create change. From the many interactions I've had, I know that folks across the globe are taking action and others in our community want to hear about it. Beginning this season, The Ethical Rainmaker is going to start peppering in stories of some of the strategies and tactics that are being created and experimented with and utilized since the launch of community-centric fundraising, providing inspiration and real-life examples of how one can apply more ethical, equitable, and community-centered principles in our work. This brings us to our guest today. 
Virginia Community Voice equips their neighbors to realize their vision for their own neighborhoods. Locally, they work with marginalized communities that have not historically been listened to or heard in implementing the solutions they think best for their communities. And they work to prepare the official decision makers and traditional positional authority to listen and implement those solutions. All of this is towards a commitment for equity for the entire Commonwealth of Virginia. In December 2020, Virginia Community Voice threw their own launch party, sharing their courageous fundraising principles, which they developed after experiencing the launch of communitycentricfundraising.org. Together, they framed a set of principles they created as an invitation to their community to recognize that when you build towards equity, we must apply principles around equity in every aspect of the work. And one of our guests today says, fundraising is not typically a place where equity exists. Leah Whitehurst Gibson is a seasoned community organizer with over a dozen years experience, and she's the executive director of Virginia Community Voice. She oversees the organization's operations, staff, and board development, and leads the Community Voice Blueprint training and coaching. Becca Kendrick is a seasoned grant maker and grant writer with years of experience within local nonprofits. As the development director at Community Voice, she leverages philanthropic resources to implement the vision neighbors have for their community. Together, Becca and her team challenge the racist and colonialist norms that typify nonprofit development through the organization's courageous fundraising principles. Both women are talking with us while their babies are asleep. Leah and Becca, thank you so much today for joining us on The Ethical Rainmaker. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Great to have you. So I was just completely touched, moved, and inspired when I heard about what you'd created at your organization using community-centric fundraising as a source of inspiration. First, let's talk a little bit about what Virginia Community Voice does. Leah, can you tell us a little bit about Virginia Community Voice? Sure. Virginia Community Voice was founded in 2019. We have two programs. Our first is RVA Thrives, which is a program where we're actually working with neighbors in the community every day. And RVA Thrives' goal and mission is to equip neighbors to realize their vision for their community and making sure they have say over the decisions that often in communities happen to the community versus the community having a say in what's going to kind of transpire within their neighborhood. And so our work is to equip neighbors to make sure they have the resources and are equipped with the knowledge to speak to the things that are happening in the community, gentrification, affordable housing, food access, all kinds of things that are happening that neighbors want to have a say in. And then our second program is our Community Voice Blueprint, which is the program that once we started doing community engagement, we saw that like we really needed to put this down on paper, our process for doing community engagement, because what we realized was that people are doing community engagement, they're doing community organizing, but there's not really a a document that people can go to and say, okay, here's what we can look at and have some guidance on how to do this well and how to do this with equity. Mm. And so we put together a community voice blueprint, which you can find on our website um, and download for free. And it's just really our guide to community engagement. We have a four-step process in community engagement. And so we, we've taken that process, put it in a document, and we've created training and coaching around that. And that 
part of our second program is around preparing institutions to respond effectively. So our mission overall is to equip neighbors and historically marginalized communities to realize their vision for their communities. And then the second part of our vision, our mission is to prepare institutions to respond effectively. Oh, that's so beautiful. Fully community-centered model of creating change. That's the goal. That's the goal. (laughs) So I understand Virginia Community Voice has two programs, RVA Thrives and Community Voice Blueprint. Becca, is there anything that you wanted to add to that? So as a new organization, we had an opportunity to build our fundraising and communications from the ground up in a way that we felt worked against some of the norms of nonprofit and philanthropic culture and embodied equity. And so we are also trying to to live into those principles, these courageous fundraising principles um, in how we raise funds and steward resources for the organization. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Yes, I look forward to getting into that a little bit later in this episode. And I'm wondering first if, Leah, you might tell us a little bit about how this organization started. As an organization, we were founded in 2019 by a team of all women in primary women of color, which already kind of flies in the face of the ways that most nonprofit leadership is not women of color. Most of the time, it's white women or men that are running these spaces. But really, it was in response to the community needing a space where there was equipping that needed to happen. We also rolled out of a primarily white institution, which was a process where we learned a lot about the things that we want to be and how we want to think about the ways that we interact in the world and do things differently than nonprofits typically do things. Because we had that conversation. We really did have a conversation about like, do we need to start another nonprofit? Do we need another nonprofit in the world? Do we need another entity pulling on resources and all of those things. And when we started to really look at the values and the priorities that we wanted to bring to bear in this organization, we realized that one, you know, this blueprint that we had created, there really wasn't a space for a documented, like, path toward doing equitable community engagement. And that should be a thing in the world. And there are lots of amazing community organizers out there doing the work of trying to equip the community. But on in Richmond, on this very kind of distinct neighborhood level, like we have been kind of engaging, that was a thing that we didn't really have or see. And so we really wanted to take the things that we had learned from the institutions that we had been a part of in the past and apply those things to a new organization, thinking about things differently and thinking about things from an equity perspective, from not just equity, you know, we're not about equity washing in our organization, but we are about racial equity and thinking about very specific ways to inject equity into our entire process. And that's really how the courageous fundraising principles came about is like, how do we inject equity into everything that we're doing? And what does that look like for us in our world? You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Miri. 
We're speaking with members of Virginia Community Voice, Executive Director Leah Whitehurst-Gibson and Development Director Becca Kendrick about how they launched and implemented community-centric ways of doing things in their organization, including the development and the promotion of courageous fundraising principles. Find all of our show notes and more at theethicalrainmaker.com. So you do all of this work based off of what you know about how institutions typically get in the way of equity work. You create a new model, you pay attention to all of the different pieces that can be frustrating when we're talking about moving forward towards a more equitable environment to really bring justice to our communities. And you create Virginia Community Voice and fast forward in 2019, it becomes official and fast forward to December, 2020, which is when I learned about you because you created a launch event specifically for what you called your courageous principles. And I'm wondering, Becca, if you can talk a little bit about that launch, what happened at your launch in December? Sure. So in December on Giving Tuesday, we had a virtual party to share with neighbors, with our board, with stakeholders, with investors, what it means to invest in Virginia Community Voice. So it was really an invitation as Leah says, to the world as it should be. So inviting people to come and learn about how we understand our relationship to money and how we understand our relationship to donors, what we are asking of people who invest in us, and also what we are promising to those who invest in us. And so we really sort of laid out our philosophy for giving back on Giving Tuesday. And it was stepping through each of those principles and our promises and then having an opportunity for people to respond to them and to hear what we're offering. And then also to ask people to invest in us that day. And so in that sense, it was also a successful opportunity for raising funds around these new principles that we launched. Mm. Tell us a little bit about those principles, Becca. We developed these principles last year after it sort of coincided with the launch of the community-centric fundraising principles. And it was it was during this time when we were really building our fundraising model, we were starting to talk about what we wanted that to look like, how we wanted that to work. And in doing that research around current norms and the history of philanthropy, we, we started to realize that there were just so many things that we felt were problematic from our past experiences and the ways that nonprofits raise funds and steward resources, namely that donor-centric fundraising was problematic because it really only presents one model of who a philanthropist can be. And we knew we wanted to have a more democratic and accessible model uh, in which all gifts are valued equally, no matter whether they're small or large, whether they're monetary or time. We also knew that we wanted to avoid communication that objectifies people, that is Mm. myopic and only tells one part of the story that's designed to pull at people's heartstrings, you know, and and that sort of poverty porn porn or poverty tourism that's really rooted in white supremacy and in a charity model. We knew we wanted to move away from that toward communication storytelling that is um, affirming, that is telling a more complete and complex picture, even if it's one that is um, uncomfortable And so we also knew that we wanted to be able to acknowledge and talk openly about the racist roots of philanthropy and about how wealth was accumulated through the extraction of labor and through enslavement of people and through genocide and through um, taking land. And 
and how, you know, early foundations were founded and many of the things that we've actually learned from listening to your podcast and doing uh-huh. research around philanthropy and bringing those ideas to the conversation here in Richmond. And, and the response we've had is that people are really learning things they've not heard before and are starting to ask questions about the norms and about the donor-centric model that tends to, you know, center wealthy white men. What was the process of developing those principles? Like, how did you come together to determine what those principles were going to be? A big part of our model and the way that we do things in the community is focused on making sure that voices are heard across the organization. And so Becca mentioned we invited neighbors and our board and all of these people to come to the launch party almost as a celebration of what we had created. There were people that Mm -hmm. came that weren't, you know, part of our internal structure, but we spent quite a bit of time working with our staff, working with our community. We have a neighbor-led body that we call our, our, our steering committee. We spent time like putting this before them, um, working with our board, with individual, like doing individual conversations with our board and then full conversations with our board before we got this approved. So by the time we got to the launch party, it really was a celebration of the work that we had put in. It could have very well been Becca as the development director saying, you know, I'm going to take this approach. I really like this approach and this is what we're going to do now. But that's just not the way we do things. It's not It's not our process. Our process focuses on making sure that we hear from everyone. We spent a lot of time working it through with all of our staff members and trying to mm. make sure that we all felt invested in what we were saying and what we were doing. We then took what we had done with the staff and went to the board. And at first we had, I don't know, seven or eight principles or something like that, one of our board members was like, you got to take it down. (laughs) We need, like, we can, and we can incorporate some of these things, right? And so we worked through that and we worked on language and we wanted to make sure it was accessible. And then also thinking about, you know, making sure that all the communities that we serve, so the Spanish-speaking community had access to it, that our, that the Black community had access to it. And when we put it in front of people, people understood what we were talking about. And so we did a lot of that work. And then Mm. the launch party was really kind of a celebration. We came together as an organization and we did this. And we want to tell the world what, why this is important. And why it's important Mm. for so many reasons is like things haven't been working the way that they've always been done, right? You know, we can talk about fundraising and, and funding the community, but the needles haven't really moved in the way they need to. And Becca talks about this all the time, coming from kind of the fundraising world and stepping into the space that I don't want to tell your story, Becca, but it's so impactful for me to hear someone who's been in that world for so long kind of saying, you know, we've been funding stuff for a really long time, but the needles haven't moved. What's wrong? And I think what's wrong is that community voice is not incorporated. And all of the people who should be engaged in the conversation about what philanthropy looks like, about where we should be investing our time and our dollars are not at the table. And so things are not changing because we don't have that experience at the table. That's a big part of why we created these principles is to say there are lots of voices that are not at the table and that we are saying we intentionally want those voices at the table and we're creating policies and processes that are going to bring those voices to the table. You're creating policies and processes. And one thing that I'm hearing too is that you really took your time. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, we did. It was in, it's intentional. And that's the thing. A lot of times, again, not to get too stand on the soapbox for too long, but you go right ahead, go right ahead. It's all right. <laughs> but I think again, that is the problem. We want these quick solutions. We want to invest and say, oh, we're going to have these outcomes in 12 to 18 months and everything's going to be better. We're going to fix the problem. And the reality is, is that's just not, we, and I said this in a, in a call I was on earlier today, um, there was, you know, we really put our backs into it to create inequity, right? <laughs> like we really, mm-hmm. we really did a lot of work to build the systems that we have built that oppress people and and push us down. And so it's going to take as much time to dismantle those systems. And not that we have that time, um, there needs to be urgency about it, but we also have to realize that in the urgency, there's also patience and there's also a reality that like, that it is going to take time to dismantle these things. And and if we're going to do it, it's going to take intentionality. And I think that's a big part of our process, a big part of the way that we do things is with intentionality and realizing all of the things that we have to build in to pull apart the systems that we've built that are inequitable. Like we've done that intentionally and we have to dismantle it intentionally. Mm. Thank you. That's right. We do have to dismantle it intentionally. And it sounds like y'all took the time, you rolled out of a different organization. Mm -hmm. You took the time to really set what it is you're going to do, how it was you're going to do it. You took a look at fundraising, which again, you've mentioned is a place where there isn't really an equity or racial justice lens applied most of the time. You took the time to build some courageous fundraising principles And you shopped it around to the community, building with community, getting feedback from community, taking the time to do the language translation needed, taking the time to meet with people so that you had full buy-in and full community support to build this, to build the way that your organization was going to operate, including fundraising. Absolutely. I think it, it was imperative. Like We got to a place where we... And I tell the story a lot of times when we start to think about how these principles came to be, all of the things that Becca said earlier, but also we as as people of color trying to do things differently are not immune to what to white supremacy cultural norms. Like we are not immune to operating in the way that we've been taught to operate, right? Of course, right? That's the way we've been taught. And unless there's a different paradigm, there's, you know, which is, I imagine part of why community-centric fundraising is exists because you're offering a different way. But many of us can fall into the trap of, of operating in the white supremacy in the way that it has been handed to us and the way we have been conditioned. And we as an organization led by Black women, actually focusing on equity and thinking about equity. Um, We're in a conversation with some of the neighbors, that neighbor-led steering committee that we had. We were talking something about a program and how much money had been spent in that program. And one of the neighbors said, well, can can we see the budget? (laughs) Like, is that something we can see? And, And I said, Oh, well, of course, like, yeah, we can see the budget. And then from then on, we said like, oh, well, we need to have some intentional time at our steering committee member meetings to go over the budget, talk about the budget, talk about what money's coming in, talk about all these things. But it wasn't that we didn't want to do that. It was that we just hadn't thought about it because we were operating in the way that things have always been. Fundraising's over here, programs over here, and never the, you know, two shall meet, right? 
And that's not how we want it to be, but we hadn't thought about it. And then when it was came up and we could see it, we were like, oh no, this is not okay. And that was part of the catalyst along with all of the work that Becca had been doing and thinking about the ways that we need to, to do fundraising. It was just kind of, those things came together and, and, and kind of pushed us into this place where we're thinking about um, doing things drastically differently than what the norms are. And so I'd like to tell that story to say that like, we're not, you know, as, as organizations run, I like to be honest with people like that. We, we don't have it all figured out. <laughs> like we don't always know the mm-hmm. answer until sometimes we're presented with a situation and that's the, you always, you, you know, you have the opportunity to pivot and to say, we need to do something differently or to kind of stay the course along the the norms that are continually hurting our communities. And so we made the choice to pivot. And that's and that's actually where the beauty came from. Because you know, it's it's a point of tension, right? Like you get to a point where you're like, oh, we're doing something that's not fully equitable. Do we cover it up? Do we like, you know, wash it over? Or do we or do we lean into the tension and say, we didn't do something right. We admit to it and we want to change it. And and what I find every single time is that there's beauty in, on the other side of leaning into that tension. You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Murray. Did you know The Ethical Rainmaker is now accepting sponsorship and supporters? You can join our community of individual supporters on Patreon, and if you want to find out how to get your name and your work out to our ever-expanding community, drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. We'd love to have you. Now back to our conversation with Leah Whitehurst-Gibson and Becca Kendrick of Virginia Community Voice in Richmond, Virginia. It sounds like it took a lot of courage and a lot of bravery and a lot of time, a lot of conversations with folks representing all different parts of your community. How did it feel, Leah? Like, how did it feel to make this happen? (laughs) Uh, That's a great question. Um, It felt very scary for me. And I'll tell you why. Like, I'm, you know, I'm a Black woman and... I live in Richmond, Virginia, which is the former capital of the Confederacy. I know the culture in our community, and, and not to say that that culture is not trying to change, but I know it's it's really hard to change. And, you know, we have lots of trainings where we talk about white supremacy cultural norms that impede community engagement. And one of those norms is comfort with white leadership and how mm. people of color start to say things like, this system is flawed and things like we think about, we think about this a lot where Becca will, will, will say something that she knows that we need to say to white people, but I can't say it because it's um, going to be too confrontational and not too confrontational, but it won't be received in the way that it needs to be received so that we can get the point across. Um, we're not afraid of confrontation, but yeah, there was just a lot of fear for me in this, in this space to say, listen, philanthropy is flawed. Um, deeply flawed, and we need to do something different. And we're talking about inviting people of color, women, LGBTQIA, like inviting all of these people into a place that they have not often been um, invited and pushing back on the racist system is not something that, you know, usually invites more funding. (laughs) 
So I was worried about that. I was up nights about that, talking to my husband about it. Like, what? what yeah, is this the right thing? And at the end of the day, realizing mm-hmm. that it was it was the right thing, but the right thing often is hard and is scary and makes us want to to lay it down. And my advice as people is, is as people kind of move into this space and start to think about this space, that it will be scary. You will get pushback from people um, saying like, I'm not sure. We had lots of people that we talked to about it and they were like, Leah, are you sure? <laughs> like, This doesn't feel like, are you sure? People of color, other people of color who were like worried, yeah. not, not because they didn't think it was the right yeah. thing or it was the right way to go, but they were worried for us as an organization because of potential retaliation that could come from something like this. But here's the thing, we have not seen that. We have not seen retaliation. We have seen our capacity grow. We have seen Mm. um, investment stay and in some places grow because we've chosen to do the bold thing. Again, when you hit a point of tension on the other side, there's beauty. It is also still scary, but we're going to push forward because we know that there is something more beautiful on the other side. And that has been true of my life in general, but (laughs) specifically in this space, it was scary, but also right. So powerful. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And y'all are crushing it now. (laughs) I know know y'all are crushing it. Becca, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the fundraising model, how you built it and how it's been going. Yeah. So as Leah was describing the process, it made, it reminded me too of, you know, how neighbors on our committee and, you know, we also have a model in which we hire neighbors from the community to be community engagement specialists, community advocates on our team. So they're with us, you know, in every staff meeting. And so when we were even developing just our monthly investment program, we were doing that in collaboration with neighbors on our steering committee, with neighbors on our staff, even just down to the, the name of that group. What do we call it? And what are the benefits that are conferred to that group and what does membership mean? And, you know, we've done things differently, like in our community voice amplifiers, that's our monthly investor group. We're asking people to invest both time and money. So they make up a monthly recurring investment, which, you know, is so important to sustainability in a nonprofit. Um, And at the same time, we're asking them to amplify the voices of black, indigenous and people of color three hours a month. So we're asking for both that monetary and that, and that time investment. And then we're also saying that, you know, if you're a member of our steering committee, you are automatically a community voice amplifier. So in that way, honoring both monetary and time investments, because folks on our committee give a lot of time. So I think that's just an example of how, like Leah said, we make every decision in a very democratic way. And And I will admit as a white woman and as someone who has come up through white-led institutions and very old institutions, like my family is mostly like Presbyterian minister. So we're talking about like really old institutions. Um, And I've worked for like large funding organizations and been a grant maker myself. And so I've learned all of the norms of white supremacy culture. And like, I felt very comfortable in that little bubble and have had to learn how to pivot away from it. And and in those moments, it can be very, it can be frustrating. It can take more time than I think it should. We always talk about how efficiency trumps equity. So there's so many points along yes. this way, along the way where I could have and would have in my past life said, well, this is how it's supposed to be done. I've looked at the evidence base. I've read some academic articles about it. This feels good to me. I'm going to move forward with it. And That's right. 
that's not how it works and that's not how it should work. And as Leah has said, the end result is always something stronger and always something better. I'm learning that, I have learned that. And it does take more time. And it means as a white woman too, like decentering myself. Like it's not about me and my ideas. It's not about what I think we should do. It's about what the community says that it, it wants and, and what the community, what people who are ultimately a, a, you know impacted by the resources that we're able to leverage want to see. And so it's definitely been a learning process, I think, even just for myself in the, in this position within the organization. Leah, what else would you say about the way that you've created fundraising practices or how it's going now? For us, this is not about just doing this work, doing, you know, our courageous fundraising principles, focusing our work around equity, focusing our work around the community rooted solutions to the problems that we face every day for the sake of doing that. We are doing it because our lives are at stake. Our communities are at stake. Our families are at stake. And that is the reason for this. It is not about what we think the next big thing is or how we want to move, you know, in the world differently. It is about the very soul of our spaces, of our communities, of our lives, of our children's lives. That's what I want to say is this, this is real life. It affects real people. And if we don't start to change things, our children are going to keep dying in the street. That's what's going to keep happening. If we allow our culture to support inequitable outcomes, inequitable processes, inequitable policies, that is what's going to keep happening. I feel really passionate, especially in this moment, about the work that we do because we're not trying to just do something because it's a cool thing to do. We're doing it because it's imperative, because we have to, because it is our lives and our communities at stake. And we don't have the luxury of the status quo. We just don't have that luxury anymore. Powerfully said. Thank you. I'd like to go back to tactics for a moment. Becca, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what it means to be an investor in Virginia Community Voice and how it is that you deal with different forms of giving. Sure. As I mentioned, we created a monthly investment program. We intentionally use the language of investor that rather than donor, trying to move away from a model and language that's really rooted in like a charity mindset to one in which we're thinking about people as investors who also receive some benefit from investment in us. So we have a, a monthly investors model, which I described is, is both investing your time and your money. And then we also have, you know, opportunities for people to invest one time. And we promise in our courageous fundraising promises to honor those investments equally. Uh, we also, of course, invite people to invest at a, at a higher level, like $1,000 or more. And again, we aren't really lifting up or showcasing those donors in a different way. So we've moved away from, you know, you might see an, an annual report where you've got donors listed by the amount that they've given, and we are not doing that. We haven't yet had the opportunity or the challenge of having sort of an event in which you typically lift up investors but we've talked already just when we do that, what will that look like for us and how will we be honoring people's time 
equally to large investments. Because it's one thing to say that every investment is honored equally, but then it is a different thing to operationalize it. And so we have to be thinking about what are the ways that we make ourselves available to be in conversation with and build relationship with all of our investors, regardless of their level of giving. A lot of this we're building out. And I think it's actually a really great opportunity to have not inherited a model of fundraising, but to be constantly be able to ask yourself, is this the right way to do this? Is this causing harm? Whose voices are not at the table? Like, what does it mean if we ask this person to come to this? We're constantly wrestling with all of those things. I know our audience is thirsty for tactical solutions. Thank you for talking about that, Becca, because I know that, you know, especially myself as a fundraising consultant and being a part of CCF the way that I am, folks are really thirsty to understand, you know, now what do we do? Now, how do we deal with these questions about giving our time. For example, again, the powerful example of spending time with people. How do we prioritize who we spend time with when we have limited time, but we have so many folks who are giving at a variety of levels? And I've, I hear that, you know, of the person at your organization that gives $5 versus $500 and the person giving four hours of their time, they're all considered monthly investors in the cause, which is really powerful. And, you know, there's one thing that I heard y'all talking about. I'm tempted to continue to go down the road of tactics, but there's one thing that I want to address as we wrap up here. So there's something that you said, Leah, that really struck me in earlier conversations that we've had, and that is talking to and having difficult conversations with folks and not marginalizing the roots of wealth, not upholding colonizer mentalities. And there's a lot there especially around how you were able to even get to those conversations inside the context of your organization. And I say that because as a fundraising consultant, again, one of the things that I see and hear, uh, one of the most common issues at our nonprofits actually is when a community wants something to happen or takes a stand around something, and maybe the staff does too, what's often getting in the way is the Mm -hmm. board. Now, there can be a variety of reasons for that from the way that we choose board members and what it is that we choose to prioritize and value mm-hmm. to a lack of the board you know, being brought along in a journey, et cetera. But I would love for you to talk a little bit about the way that you decided to choose your board and how it is that you've come to have so much values alignment in that arena that has allowed you to really move forward. I think that's such a great question and a huge part of being able to go on these journeys And so I'm really grateful that you brought it up in our last couple of minutes because I've run other organizations in the past and have had to think about board development, organizations that are older and that have a little bit more um, stability. But I think the way that you really think about it is if you start to engage people on your board that have some lived experience, right? We have spots on our board specifically set aside for community members to be on our board. That's one way that you have to kind of start to think about. And I, and I don't mean an advisory board. <laughs> it's not it's not an advisory situation where there's not really any any power. We're talking about people on your board that have the opportunity to shift where the organization goes. Thinking about that as you're building your board. And so also when people roll off your board. So our board is 75% people of color, people who have lived experience, people who have lived in the projects, people who have um, experienced marginalization, people who have immigrated here from other countries, people, right? There are, there, there's a vast experience. And so when we go to our board and say, listen, 
we think we should create fundraising principles that are based in your experiences, they're going to say, yeah, that makes sense, <laughs> right? Um, because they're experiences that they've had, that they've engaged with. And I think the conventional knowledge says, well, okay, but if we start to if we start to have board members that don't have deep pockets or don't have connections with other people that can help invest in the organization, like how are we going to survive as a nonprofit? So I think a couple of things. One, that is making a lot of assumptions about, about people. And two, I think in our experience, we have not suffered from these decisions. We have not suffered. Our organization has not suffered. Our work has not suffered. We have not struggled to raise money because we don't have board members that have deep pockets. People have connections with other people, right? Our board is about trying to push the organization in direction that makes sense for the community, not about just raising money for the organization. If you start to shift your perspective of what a board should be and how it should support your actual mission of the organization, then you start to see how to build your board. And so when people roll off, start to replace those people with people that have some lived experience, that are from the community, that engage with the community, that know the community, and that can start to push the rest of those on your board toward more equitable outcomes. And I think that's a huge thing to remember, especially when you have those board seats that open up. Think about who who else in the community, who's respected, that you could potentially engage to step into those places. That's so great. Thank you so much for answering that. Anything that we didn't cover that either of you really wanted to say? Oh, I just will say that we've shared this with our institutional funders as well. And that's that's a another big conversation, but mm-hmm. we've shared we've primarily relied on large grants from foundations and we've shared our principles with them as well and have even envisioned a world in, in which a time in which, you know, when we sign grant agreements with funding institutions mm-hmm. that we also ask them to sign these principles mm-hmm. saying, you know, we agree to your sort of guidelines and, and we're asking and inviting you to agree to ours. We will get back to you on how they <laughs> receive that. But so far the institutional funders have affirmed what we're doing mm-hmm. as well. So not mm-hmm. just our individual donors, but also the larger institutions. And I will that's so yeah, great. I will just say, I'll just add to that, that that that's, again, speaks to the reality of making the hard choices and doing the hard things and how, again, there's something more beautiful on the other side. There's something, um, the tension that you feel when you start to create these changes doesn't compare to the beauty that you find on the other side of that tension and where you end up is going to support your mission and vision more successfully than just kind of staying with the status quo. So moving in the di- that direction and that we love to be a resource for people. Like we wanna, we wanna be a resource to start to help communities start to think about how to move in these directions and how hard it is and to meet you where you are and to work through all those things. But it's really important. If we don't start making these changes, like I said before, the needles aren't going to move and we're just going to be in the place that we've always been. Leah Whitehurst Gibson, 
Executive Director of Virginia Community Voice, and Becca Kendrick, Development Director at Virginia Community Voice. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our communities, for the examples you're setting and the new ways you're creating of doing things that we can all learn from. It's been such a pleasure to have you here today on The Ethical Rainmaker. Thank you so much for sharing your time. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. And that's it for The Ethical Rainmaker. If you're inspired by what you hear, don't let your friends miss out. Share this pod. And thank you to our latest homies. We now have a community of 56 individual supporters through Patreon. Our newest fam include Yana, Ethan, Mary, Laura, Penelope, and Rebecca. It is so lovely to have y'all. So you can find us just like they did on Patreon or connect with us directly to sponsor the show. And just drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. We'd love to hear what this episode inspired in you. DM us on Insta, Facebook, the CCF Slack channel, or our website where you can send a voice message directly to us. We'd love to hear your ideas and your thoughts for future episodes, whatever you're curious about, any questions you've got, and just know that we might expand your burning question into our next episode. The Ethical Rainmaker is produced by Juliana Mayo in LA, Kazmara Hall in Sacramento, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, with socials by Stacey Wynn Creative and production assistance by Coco Decker. I also have emotional support from my foster dog, Franco, and all of us reside in Seattle. Thank you so much to Leah and Becca, who recorded this episode twice. And as always, find extensive show notes and transcripts at theethicalrainmaker.com. Our theme song is I'm Gold by Trick Candles. They're amazing, and you can find them on Bandcamp. The Ethical Rainmaker comes to you again in two weeks, and we can't wait to share with you what's next. See you then.